From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Jersey City, I'm Erica Ducey. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Bear Podcast. Uh, and Jersey City? Yeah, we are back in Jersey City. Wow. Yeah. So I have to say it is quite shocking. Um, I traded the view out my window in Connecticut, which was of a pond and a field and a mature grove of trees. And right now I am looking down a block in Jersey City where all but one of the stores is shuttered. The only one that's open is a uh, liquor store at the end of the block and um, homeless encampments, you know, right right in front of me. Worse than I've seen since I've lived in Jersey City. Right. And you've been in Jersey City for how many years? Uh, for 12, 12 years. Wow. Yeah, man, it's crazy, right? You come back and you're like, whoa, this is what's happening. It's a shock to the system. It really is. Yeah. Are, do you have any restaurants on your block? Any bars? Uh, no. Uh, actually, yes. There is one across the street. There was one, I should say, but now it's permanently closed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Just crazy. Just crazy. Well, But anyways, welcome back to the tri-state area. Thank you. <laughs> Wait, isn't Connecticut part of the tri-state area? Is it? I yeah, thought it was it New York, Jersey, and Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, it is. Never mind. So welcome back to the metro area. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> welcome back, you know. If you see your pond at your window, that will be just the latest natural disaster. To the <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm just waiting for the streets to open up. So that's I mean, next. <laughs> I guess, And I guess big news in New York is that they've decided finally that they're going to allow 25% indoor dining as of uh, September 30th, which is pretty crazy. Um, I still don't know, like, I know we've heard this before, but like, I don't think I'm going to go dine indoors, though. I'm not. I've decided that I am not comfortable dining indoors until the pandemic is curbed, until yeah. it's it's either really, you know, way, way, all, you know, pretty much eradicated or there's a vaccine. I'm just I'm just not comfortable. I just don't think it's worth the risk. Yeah, I don't think so either. Zach? Oh, yeah. I, not <laughs> zero chance. Like, I just, I, I you know, this has been a surprise. I mean, as we've talked about a number of times on this podcast, like it's been very weird to live six months of my life without restaurants, but uh, I can live another six months, year, two years, whatever. Like I don't want to get COVID. So no, I'm not going to a restaurant. Yeah. Sorry. It's really crazy, man. It's really crazy. I mean, but you know, the, the sidewalk cafes, at least out here in Brooklyn are more crowded than ever. I mean, so people are definitely trying to, to have some sort of normalcy, but they're, you know, it's, it's weird. Cause you know, it's funny. My, um, my wife was saying earlier this week, and I, I agree with her. She was like, I just, I miss quarantine. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, I just miss like when we knew what the rules were. Do you know what I mean? Like when it was like, look, we all were just, we were all staying inside. We were socially distancing. And like, maybe we saw the one random person that we felt really comfortable seeing. She was like, man, I crushed that time. You know, like we were cooking we were and now like this this middle ground is so weird because it's like so what is acceptable what isn't acceptable do you go back to the office do you not go back to the office i mean you have so many offices that are reopening um you know do you go out to eat do you not if you go out to eat how do you you know where do you go out to eat where do you sit when you go out to eat like how do you treat people like all this stuff that's just sort of like i wish like we, we should either be like it's everything shut down or everything's open and i'm sure that that's got to be very hard for um, you know, any owners as well of restaurants. I know it's hard for us as an owner of a business of when do we open the Vine Pair office, which still isn't. Um, you know, just a thinking about do you open, do you not? How do you open? What does that look like? It's just, it's crazy. And, you know, there's no guidance at all. So, 
Yeah. And it's totally inconsistent. So, you know, my kids are doing remote school and I had to chase down a Chromebook. I went into the city yesterday and went into an electronic store where it was masks optional. I was like, are you kidding Wait, me? are you serious? I am serious. In Chelsea, I went into a large chain electronic store and it was masks optional. People had no masks on and I beat a path out of that store so quickly. Then I came back over to the same large chain store uh, over a little bit farther out in Jersey, masks required. It's inconsistent, completely inconsistent. Yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, look, and like that's that's one of the reasons that um that the that the percentage law got overturned in New York City because basically, so there's um for those not familiar, there's this one area of Queens where it's you know the the line is very like blurred between when Queens stops and when Long Island begins. And there was this you know restaurant in Queens that was like, look, you know literally 200 feet from our door is one of our competitors who happens to be in Long Island and they are open with 50% capacity indoors. Please explain why it's not safe 200 feet away here, but it's safe enough there, right? Like this is just, and then they sued the, the state. And I think, and that was one of the things Cuomo responded to. And one of the reasons he was like, okay, fine. I'll give you at least 25 because it is across the board inconsistent, right? right? Even like, in terms of everything. And that's what just makes this so nuts. Like some states are saying it's completely fine to be, you know, 75% capacity. Some states are saying it's not fine to be, you know, eating at all indoors or outdoors. It's just, it's, it's crazy. I think it's what's making us all a little nutty. Yeah. Well, it's one of the advantages to being in a city in a state where we are, I'm not very close to any other state line. So there isn't that kind of like, you know, for Erica going from New Jersey to New York is a very, very simple trip. And you can come across different laws and different practices or whereas in Washington state, you know, there's a statewide mask mandate. So I'm not concerned that the store I go into is going to have a, you know, a different policy or different rules because they're in a different jurisdiction. And so, but I totally agree that, you know, one of the, one of the major issues that we're all dealing with is there aren't a lot of, you know, well-articulated guidelines. And I mean, again, look, you know, we're not going to turn this into a huge rant, I don't think, but one of the big problems is, you know, we all crushed lockdown if we did and nothing really happened. Like that's right. the part of this that's really hard is, you know, if we had gone three months of lockdown and then emerged like a lot of Europe did, like being able to go back to some semblance of normal life. Not that any of us would have been like, oh man, COVID was great. It was obviously horrible on on so many levels, but at least we would have felt like that time that was, you know, for a lot of us, very difficult and, and obviously very traumatic in a lot of different ways was put to use. And instead it's right. like, well, we're still in this pandemic where things aren't all that much better. We still don't have any fucking clue what's going to happen. And we're about to get to the time of year where going outside for most of us is going to be not very pleasant. And, and right. so- you know, we're not going to be able to hide out outside and sort of ignore it. We're going to be stuck indoors or forced into shared public spaces. And that part is the part that's going to suck because it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be as clear cut as it was in March, April, May, what we need to do. But we're still going to have to deal with doing if we're doing things in public, they're going to be in cl- indoors for most of us. Right. Yeah, it's just really crazy. Uh, but, you know, we'll, we'll get I guess we'll get through it. We're all trying. We're all trying and drinking a lot. Anyways, um, so let's let's get into to this week's topic, which is one that is we all felt very important and uh, you know worth discussing, which is the, the you know the awful fires that are ravaging uh, the west coast of the United States. And it's interesting um, when we were talking about the the subject for today's podcast, I was slacking with both of you, and I know I, I shared with you this uh, interesting 
uh, thought that I read in the New York Times this morning, which was basically that, you know, the fires aren't getting enough attention. And one of the biggest reasons that this writer was saying that they don't think that they are is because even though, you know, for a lot of people who probably listen to the podcast, this is, is one of the main things you're thinking about if you live on that side of the country, because the media is, you know, based on the East Coast, they're just not covering it as much as they would if these fires were happening, you know, on the East Coast side of the country, uh, which I think is is worth considering. Um, because these are, you know, fires that are really damaging, you know, whole swaths of land in California, Washington, and Oregon, uh, and really, you know, affecting people's livelihoods in a, in a very fundamental way, you know, and then on top of that, there's a pandemic, right? So it's just, it's really terrible. So I think, you know, we want to use this podcast to draw attention to what's happening on the West coast of the country, talk a little bit about, you know, how they're really going to impact, um, the, the people who are going through it, but also, you know, truly let you know if you're a listener and you aren't truly aware of what's happening to please be aware of what's happening and think about supporting, you know, the wineries, breweries, et cetera, that are going to be really suffering because of, you know, because of these fires. So Zach, you're over there. So let's start with you. Um, you know, what, what's it like to be living in Seattle? I mean, does the reporting feel more constant for you than it does for us? What are you hearing from people that, you know, uh, on, on the West side, you know, the West side of the country in terms of what they're dealing with? Well, I think it's it's kind of this multiple there's multiple parts to the answer, unsurprising, I suppose. So the first thing I would say is that, you know, one thing that's challenging often, I think, for people um, on the East Coast to understand if you haven't spent a lot of time on the West Coast is just how big the states are out here and how big the the fires are. So, you know, uh, you can all look up the, some of the details on the fires, in particular in California, and the amount of land that's burned and the, the scope of them. But it's the size of states, you know, obviously not the size of California, uh, but it's the size of, of states. And, and so, but, but at the same time, much of this land is very remote. You know, it's even in California, uh, certainly in Oregon and, and some of the case in Washington with the fires, you know, uh, there are not big population centers. And I think this is generally one of the reasons why these big uh, fires over not just this year, but in previous years too, don't draw media attention is, is one, yeah, it happens far away from, you know, New York City. But also when you have hurricanes or you have earthquakes, you know, often where that footage and that coverage is coming from are, are cities, you know, big population centers that are damaged. And to this point so far, while while these big population centers on the West Coast are being impacted with smoke and 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 things like that, you know, the fires themselves have not necessarily um, threatened these these cities. But at the same time, they are they are massive, and you know, big fires are you know fundamentally different than an earthquake or a hurricane because you know we don't really know when they're going to end. You know, an earthquake happens, and obviously, like there's tremendous damage, and can it can start fires and things like that. But the earthquake itself, you know, is a few minutes, and then there are certainly sometimes aftershocks. And with hurricanes, you know, we have really sophisticated modeling technology. We have a pretty good idea for where a hurricane's going to go, when it's going to arrive, when it's going to pass. And a, there's a ton of work and a ton of damage, but it's mostly in the cleanup. And with fires, you know, we just they're they're so unpredictable. Um, they're so dependent on winds. That can shift suddenly and on uh, conditions on the ground that are very hard to understand. And so, so there's, there's a part of this that's just very difficult to forecast. And, and that, that creates a, a lot of uncertainty. It also creates a lot of danger. You know, the, the thing I would say to this point is that what we're, what I've seen and heard from friends, um, you know, up and down the coast is that, you know, the, the, the scary thing for a lot of people is this is earlier than fire season is supposed to happen, right. especially in California. And so, you know, 
on the one hand, you know, granted land that, you know, fires that, you know, woods that burn, land that burns, isn't going to burn again in a month. Um, but, you know, there's certainly all the still existing potential for the typical fire season for much of California and Oregon and to some extent Washington, which is sort of now through October. And so to the fact that we already have these massive fires formed in, you know, mostly in August is is scary. And, um, you know, we'll talk a little more down a little later about the impact on on wine and beer. But uh, but, you know, there's there are, you know, real concerns about, you know, what this means, even without all the added challenges that this year was going to have thanks to COVID. That's interesting. I actually didn't realize that it was earlier, to be honest. I mean, again, that's because we don't, I think, you know, deal with it on this side of the country as often. So I really had had no clue. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think probably the best way to visualize it, and I was looking at the fire maps today, is uh, there's a site that's fire.ca.gov, and that uh, is a government website that tracks fires, not just in California, but you can also see the ones in uh, Oregon and Washington on that map. And if you look at it today, uh, which is Thursday, um, the 10th, you can see that the fires are stretching all the way from the Mexico border all the way up to uh, Canada. I mean, it's it's pretty shocking and upsetting to see how many fires are happening. And we are only now in the first week of September. Um, I mean, I think in just in California alone, there's 28 major wild wildfires and 14,000 firefighters who are currently working, you know, overtime on these things. And, uh, and, and then I couldn't believe the photos that came out of, about um, in San Francisco and parts of Oregon, where literally yesterday was the day that the sun did not rise. It was shocking to see those otherworldly orange, yellow glow images of just, you know, hundreds and thousands of acres being um, just totally decimated. Uh, it, it was, it's pretty shocking to see the imagery. Yeah, it's really nuts. I mean, so let's, so, so I was talking to someone in Napa uh, last week who said, you know, they came, they came out uh, of their house in the morning and their car was covered in ash. So um, thinking about, you know, even if you're not, you know, in the path of the fire, right? The fire is impacting you and especially impacting you if you are a grower. Um, so one of the biggest things that we're hearing a lot about now is how the fires are going to impact harvest, right? And both for uh, hops as well as for uh, grapes, right? So, you know, a lot of people were saying early on that this was going to be a, you know, a major year for for grapes, especially in California, that there's going to be so much, but, you know, because of COVID, maybe less demand. So we're going to see a ton of that wine on, you know, the market across the country. Like all, you know, people were joking, like, oh, you're probably going to find like Napa Cabernet in like Texas Hill Country wine, you know, for whatever, whatever the legal limit of that was, because there was just going to be so much. And now, you know, everyone's talking instead about smoke taint. Um, and so I'm not as familiar with smoke taint in terms of scientifically how it works. Uh, and I was hoping one of you were, uh, to sort of talk us through sort of what smoke, I mean, I understand like smoke taint is, you know, the grapes get tainted with smoke and then they taste like smoke, but sort of, you know, how that works and, and why it can't be reversed. Uh, Zach, do you have, you probably have a better handle on it than I do. I, I sure. So, so <laughs> I'm going to give, I'm going to give my best explanation as to what exactly happens here and, and try to, to sort of explain what, what smoke taint is and, and why it's something to be both be concerned about and also not super concerned about. So, so the one thing is like, you know, there's, 
there's still not a lot of great understanding scientifically from what I, from what I know, uh, you know, our, our ability to understand what conditions lead to smoke tain in wine, um, in a finished wine, I should say, are, you know, it's not super well understood. Obviously, over the last few years, there's been more emphasis in um, sort of academic and, and um, you know, sort of research settings to try and understand this, um, both at a, you know, sort of an academic level. And I think certainly in some of the big wine companies, they're probably doing some research too. Um, Australia is really the place where a lot of the research has been done because wildfires have been a bigger issue for them um, than, than in the U.S., uh, in the past. So one, one thing to note is that, you know, fire that, that smoke taint seems to be a bigger risk with, um, with it's, it's really only a risk with red wine because the, the smoke taint affects, um, the, you know, skins of the grapes, it sort of adheres to the skins of the grapes. And so you're only going to really extract the compounds that, that are, that we sort of think of as smoke taint when you're doing macerations of, of some length, which is what you do for red wine, but not for white or rosé. So, so white wine rosé should largely be safe. The biggest risk with smoke taint is that it seems to be only really detectable post-fermentation. Interesting. So one of, or even sometimes after aging. So one of the real issues for winemakers is it's not like you can in the vineyard or even at the sorting table, look at a grape. And in the same way that you could detect rot or mildew, you can't detect smoke taint necessarily. And you sound like washing the grapes seems to do a lot. It's that these, that the, the skins themselves take up these compounds and, and sort of lock them in. And then they're released uh, through fermentation and sometimes in the aging process. And so the problem is basically you can have wine that seems fine through fermentation, and then a few months into the aging process, you go in and you smell it, or you taste it, and you go, "Oh shit, my wine is ruined. It's tainted," and and the and that is the big risk here. So so you're going to have a lot of different approaches from wineries and winemakers. Some of them may, you know, be very very cautious and may decide to do very little winemaking this year, or or the winemaking they do is going to be you know, they're going to make nothing but white and rosé, or they're going to make really limited macerations, or they're going to not in, you know, they're going to basically do whatever they can to try and avoid smoke tainted wines. Others might say, fuck it, we're going for it. And if we detect smoke taint, well then shit, we got to do something with that wine. And maybe the answer is, you know, blend it in and, you know, blend it away in small quantities. You know, there seems to be a, a school of thought in winemaking that, you know, a very small amount of smoke tainted uh, juice can not can be sort of non-detectable or even can add a sort of desirable smoky note as opposed to the sort of classic ashtray note of like a truly smoke tainted wine, which I've had the chance to try being here on the West coast. I've had winemakers sometimes with previous vintages that were smoke tainted be like, here, try this. This is what smoke taint is. And you're like, Oh shit, this is disgusting. Um, and, and, and the, the honest truth is at this point, from what I know, we don't have good testing for this pre fermentation. It's going to be a crapshoot is the shitty part of this. And, and I don't have a better way to explain it than that. Yeah, I, I've seen uh, uh, some ver- varying sort of opinions on how long the exposure period is as well. So some people, you know, in the past have more said it takes, you know, several days of prolonged heavy smoke exposure to really damage the grapes and have those phenols, you know, stick to the grape in a way that can't come off. Um, but then I've seen others saying that even a day or two of that type type of heavy smoke exposure can really ruin the grapes. And of course, like you said, it's going to be less with uh, 
with white wine, or even we may see more rosé wines being made uh, this year as a way to try to salvage some of those red wine grapes, because you're just not going to be able to uh, leave the grapes, uh, leave the wine, leave the the juice on the grapes to develop the red wine uh, characteristics that you need over a long period of time with that uh, smoke effects there. So I think what we'll see is um, a, a change in what how people are going to operate this year. I mean, looking at all of California, you see reports of uh, grape um, producers already saying that they're not going to take their crops or that they're not going to uh, make wine this year in Sonoma, in Napa, in Paso Robles, in uh, in the Central Coast, all throughout the state. I've seen uh, a lot of conversation happening about who is or isn't going to make wine and which grapes were able to come in before the fires really got going. So I think that's, you know, that's what's uh, at play here is really the entire harvest. If it, if the grapes were not already picked, you know, before the smoke got heavy, it could be ruinous for some producers. It's just nuts, man. Like it really is crazy because you're, you know, it's just shittiness upon shittiness <laughs> that, it's just nothing that you can do. And, and that's what I'm wondering, though, because there's been so many of these fires in recent years, um, has there been anything that the wine industry has done? And maybe we don't know the answer to this question. And if you're a, post- a podcast listener and you do, let us know uh, at podcast at But has there been anything that, you know, has been done to try to mitigate that risk? Right. So um, and, you know, do, do the wineries have, you know, smoke taint insurance now or uh, do they, are there other things that they can they can do that really will help them if they lose a huge majority of their crop? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, I know I. that uh, that there is some insurance, um, that there's some agricultural insurance that could come into play. But they're probably like all insurance is so many hoops to jump right. through to try to be able to take advantage of it. So I'm not sure if there's kind of a hard and fast rule about what would and wouldn't qualify. Interesting. So can you just make a lot of brandy with it or something? I mean, like what is it just turn into like a bunch of gin all of a sudden, like some of these wines you just, could you just distill? Like, is that sort of what you're stuck or with? If you turn can't into hand sanitizer. Yeah, exactly. Like, is that just what you're, sanitizer. yeah. Speaking of hand sanitizer, like, you know, the champagne producers who are like, we will not release the wine on the market if it is cheaper, which will be hand sanitizer. Like, you know, I, I wonder if that's what you're going to see is, yeah. Like just a lot of like high quality, you know, California wine sanitizer. Well, you also have this other problem that's going on that we kind of touched on that was already existing in in wine and and in hops, where you're already having labor issues thanks to COVID. And the other thing to think about is like vineyard work in a lot of these places is not necessarily all that safe. Like, you know, fortunately, Seattle didn't have it nearly as bad as some other parts of the West Coast. But the last couple of days here, it's especially Tuesday, it was like not safe to be outside for prolonged periods of time, certainly not doing something as, as, you know, sort of physically demanding is harvesting grapes. And so, you know, that is another piece of this, you know, we were already, you know, talking about, as you mentioned earlier on, Adam, that, you know, the that we were already talking about potentially a, a smaller crop or questions about what would happen to grapes that were on the vine that maybe there wasn't the labor to pick. And you're going to, you're going to potentially add to that. I mean, we're, we're kind of at the early stages of harvest for, for a lot of areas in the, in the, on the West coast, but it's getting there, you know, early, early to mid September is, you know, certainly the beginning of the harvest season for a lot of places and, and will often be in 
full swing quite soon. And, and many of these fires are far from contained and there can be always new fires and things like that. So, so, I mean, uh, one possibility is just, there's a lot of unharvested grapes this year. You know, they, the birds have a great year. Um, and that may just be one of the the answers is just it's not in the end worth it from a, lo- a variety of levels, economically, health wise, et cetera, to, to just pick a lot of grapes, which, you know, is kind of sad on the one hand in that, like, you know, think of what that could have, you know, the wine that could have been if it wasn't smoke tainted. On the other hand, you know, maybe that's just the best answer is just to basically say 2020 sucks for everyone. We're yeah. just going to. We're just going to move on. Except for yeah. the birds. Except for the birds. Yeah. Except exactly. for the birds. And, you know, one angle that we have been reporting on is how local tourism has been a lifeline for a lot of wineries and breweries and distilleries who've been able to do curbside and outdoor um, tastings and so forth. And this is adding insult to injury. I mean, now not only can you not uh, sell your wines on premise or pick the grapes, but also you have uh, the the small diminished um, lifeline that you did have of serving people at your tasting room, that too is gone. So, you know, we have the plague, we have the fire and the locusts are coming next. Like that's for sure. Totally. As long as there's no smiting of the firstborn, because that would be bad for me. <laughs> well, it's just nuts. And and um and Zach, just really quickly before we wrap this one up for today, because, you know, last week's was so long. Um <laughs> What what is impacting? You know, we talked a little bit about the grapes, but I know we mentioned hops earlier. How is the smoke impacting hops? How are the fires impacting hops? Well, so that's a good question, and 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 I'll give the what I know to this point. So so I will say right up front, I don't have an answer yet. I've been trying to find one out. I don't know that anyone knows. I don't think there's as much concern about you know smoke taint on hops because the the process basically what happens with grapes is you know the 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 compound the smoke compounds bind to sugars in the grapes and that's how they're sort of locked into the grape itself and then that's why it's released during uh, fermentation and and later on during the sort of maturation process since you know hops are not picked for their sugar they're not the fermentable substance in beer you know that's that's barley and other malted uh grains there isn't the same risk you know there there could be some flavor impacts but i think it's not as the, the hop growers i spoke to are not concerned about you know the hops themselves being damaged the issue is really twofold one is again the same as with wine um an issue of labor um and and whether again it's safe to pick uh, hop harvesting like wine harvesting is sort of a mix of mechanization and hand labor um and obviously if the air is um unsafe to be out in then things don't get picked. Um, and for those of you who don't know, like 98% of the hops in this country are grown in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho in the sort of broader Columbia Valley um, sort of footprint. And so, you know, this is right where many of these fires are. So there's there's that risk. And then there's also the honest risk of like many of these hop fields as opposed to vineyards are more closely situated to some of these fires and because of where they're positioned um, more in the valley floors than on hills, they're more, I think at more risk of burning. I haven't heard yet about any of that. Um, I, but I know that um, a couple of growers I was talking to actually for an article that I'm working on for vine pair, which hopefully will come out, although <laughs> I'm in the process of having to rewrite it because these fires are changing the story. Um, there are definitely some concern about an actual loss of crop due to fire um, to say nothing of, you know, people's, homes and businesses and things like that. And, and also, of course, possibly lives. So uh, that's very much a TBD. But yes, there's there's also a real risk um, to the hop harvest in the US. Uh, this go around. There's, there's sort of the, 
you know, again, what that means, I, I no one knows yet, but but we'll we'll follow up for sure. But it's definitely um, it's not just wine that's potentially being impacted here. Just crazy. So yeah, if you are listening, please reach out to wineries that you love, uh, breweries that you love, support them, buy their products because everyone's going to need a lot of help, um, and you know, to get through this because the, the, these fires are absolutely nuts, and we should be paying attention to them more if if you are not already. And learn to love white and rosé because that might all be all you're getting domestically. Yeah. Seriously. Well, guys, this has been an interesting podcast. Um, uh, please, you know, if you have any thoughts, reach out to us at podcast at com. Uh, we'd love to hear your views, uh, other topics you'd like us to discuss in future episodes. Um, and as always, thanks for listening. And Erica, Zach, I'll see you next week. See you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.